On this Lord's Day morning, on which Christmas has also fallen, I invite you to turn with me to the book of Matthew, to the first chapter. We'll pick up there at verse 18, to Matthew chapter 1, please, and verse 18. I will uh, confess to you this morning, as I did to uh, one of you in particular, that um, I wasn't exactly sure what I was going to preach about today and struggled with it. Over the years, I've preached to you at Christmas time from topics such as the humility of Christmas to the richness of Christmas, from the personalities of Christmas, Simeon and Anna, to the angels and wise men. And frankly, I, I thought there was nothing left to say, I doubted there was any more of this history that I hadn't already preached to you. Well, shame on me. And then you told me that it had occurred to you and you'd been particularly struck about the faith of Mary and especially of Joseph when the news came to them. No, no, I, I thought there, there must be something better than that. I'm a pastor after all, I, I should think of something else. And so we come this morning, I don't know where I come up with these ideas, but we come this morning to the faith of Joseph. Consider it with me this morning and we go to the text, as we go to the text in a moment, and try to place yourself in the place, in the shoes, and in the thoughts of Joseph during those days, which must have been deeply difficult to him, as one commentator put it, in which the world for him must have seemed to have been coming to an end. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for preserving for us the uh, history of your servants and setting before us a model in them of godliness and holiness that we may, as your word has taught us to do, consider their faith and imitate it in our own lives as well. Teach us, we pray, of your grace and the life of a willing servant of yours, we pray. For we ask it and plead for this, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Matthew chapter 1 and beginning at verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now, by giving him the name Jesus, Joseph does two things. On the one hand, he formally accepts this child as his own, which is important because it makes Jesus, as the Bible traces his lineage through Joseph, a son of David, like himself. But the name is also uh, deeply important itself, as the angel points out. It comes from the Hebrew Yeshua, which means Yahweh is salvation. It also sounds like he will save, which is exactly what Jesus will do. His name means Savior. 
Verse 22, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from his sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son. And he called his name Jesus. Where is Joseph? It's a question I now ask myself that I never had occurred to me before to ask. When you see the pictures, when you see the paintings and the drawings of Jesus as a babe, you almost invariably see in those pictures uh, also Mary. She's almost always there, often donning a sort of halo about her head as she holds the precious infant in her arms. But where, where is Joseph? Even in our hymns, at uh, Christmas time, Joseph is conspicuously absent. In fact, I looked through this week in our hymnal to find that, that Joseph's name is mentioned in our entire hymnal, as far as I could discern, one time. And that in the hymn we sung at the beginning of this worship this morning. Had we not added a verse to that Christmas hymn several weeks ago that included Joseph's name, we would have had Joseph's name for the first and only time this month in our worship on our lips this morning. Joseph remains quietly in the background of our thinking about Christmas and about the life of Christ. Now, part of the reason for that must be the fact that Scripture itself gives us relatively little about Joseph. We know he's a carpenter, for instance, but that we find out almost by accident when Jesus' town folk in Nazareth doubt him and don't believe in him and even ask, isn't this the carpenter's son? Most of what we know about Joseph we get from this single passage before us this morning. Another reason, I think, why Joseph gets pushed into the background must also be the inordinate amount of attention that has been paid to Mary even to the point of creating such unbiblical doctrines as her perpetual virginity, her sinlessness, even her role as a mediator to God. Joseph, on the other hand, never has received that sort of level of canonization in the history of the church. And so we're left to ask as we, as we look on the manger scene, who is this man? Who is this Joseph, and what importance does he play in this history? And, and what lessons, if any, must there be for us in the consideration of his place and his person in the unfolding of God's redemptive plan and in the redemption of sinners such as you and I? Well, we may begin by noting that Joseph was a carpenter, probably actually more of an artisan, his trade was a difficult one, working with raw materials and building everything we can imagine from furniture to houses. But uh, whatever his trade led him to, it was not riches. 
We may surmise that Joseph was not a man of wealth or of means from the kind of sacrifice that he and Mary brought. Do you remember when they arrived at the temple for their purification? Recorded in Luke 2, there they offered as sacrifice a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons as the law prescribes for those who are too poor to be able to afford a lamb. So what we have in Joseph is not a, a rich man nor famous, but an honest, hard-working tradesman who is engaged or betrothed to young Mary. He is also, by the way, a descendant of the house of David, as Matthew so carefully and precisely points out in his genealogy in those verses 1 through 17 of Matthew 1, and which point is highlighted by the angel, as we just read, who spoke to Joseph in a dream saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear. So Joseph, we know, was also of royal blood. To be sure, but that did not make him anything remarkable to his neighbors who, who might have admired his handiwork and enjoyed his acquaintance there in Nazareth and Galilee. We don't know that he attracted any particular attention to himself, and my guess is he preferred it that way. The last thing he was looking for was to be drawn close to the, to the center of human history itself. In fact, at the first, I'm sure that he had rather, he had not been drawn into these events at all. Here was a, here was a quiet, focused worker betrothed to the apple of his eye, Mary. He knew her character. He knew that she was a young woman of purity and of holiness and of spiritual maturity. Like attracts like in circles of godly marriages. Long before anyone else called her the Virgin Mary, she was that in the most beautiful sense to him in his eyes and in his heart. So you can only imagine the shock and the dismay and the wrenching of the heart that must have come, come over him when he was told that Mary was pregnant. This was not the Mary he loved. This was totally unexpected and completely unanticipated. Only the explanation of this could outstrip the outlandishness of the news that this child of Mary is born, is, is in her womb, not of infidelity on her part, but rather a work of God's spirit. You'll understand, of course, if, if his heart is torn and his spirit restless in him over this. Nobody had ever become pregnant as a virgin. It was more to him than he could possibly wrap his mind around. And it tore his heart. But all of that makes Joseph's response to and role in this history the more remarkable and the more worthy of our attention this morning. 
Why should the Holy Spirit record these words about Joseph, if not, among other things, for our consideration, as the writer of Hebrews puts it, for our consideration of his faith and the imitation of it in our own lives? So now watch and learn, dear flock, the ways of a righteous man in the face of what must have come at the first as a terrible blow and crushing. In fact, that's exactly what the scripture calls him, a righteous man or just there in verse 19. Consider the life of this, this righteous man, the kind of man whom God uses for the powerful advancement of his kingdom. Notice first of all, that Joseph's righteousness reveals itself in compassion and love. And notice how that places God's definition of manhood at odds with the way so much of our culture defines manhood. We exalt toughness and a man with the ability to exact vengeance to flex some muscle in getting his pound of flesh when offended, when somebody else steps onto his turf. Now don't get me wrong, Joseph is no milk toast. We'll watch as Joseph manly, manfully protects and defends and leads his wife through and, and family safely through harsh and even dangerous situations, whether from Nazareth to Bethlehem or from there to Egypt and, and then back from there later on, that Joseph was a, was a man's man, I am absolutely certain. But his manhood is true manhood in the fact that it reveals itself also as the ability to love, and to love so deeply and so faithfully that no matter how it is offended, it is able to rise above that offense and act still with care and with mercy. And none of us blames Joseph for coming to the conclusion that he did, that Mary had been unfaithful to him, that she had committed adultery. They were engaged to be sure, but they had remained sexually pure. When she told him that she was pregnant, even though she tempered that announcement with the assurance that she had remained pure, that she was still a virgin, it was more than he could possibly take in. After all, such a thing had never happened before in the history of mankind. Even as Mary's heart broke to tell him this news that she knew he could not possibly believe, his own heart broke too. And no matter what he tried to believe, nothing else could he possibly think. Could it really be that that his betrothed was the only girl to whom this had ever happened, virgin pregnancy? No, of course not. And now the options are clear. An engagement in those days, we understand, was more serious than an engagement in our own. A betrothal was a commitment from which one could only escape uh, by death 
which left the living party a widow or a widower in the eyes of the community or by divorce. Now, this was a particularly aggravated circumstance because it involved, in Joseph's understanding, infidelity on Mary's part. And under the law, Joseph could either divorce her publicly to her public disgrace and shame, or he could privately put her away in the presence of two witnesses. Now, what to do? Well, Joseph's sterling character rises to the surface in his plans as deeply offended as his love must be as piqued as we might understand his anger to have become still his heart is tender still he is a man of mercy to Mary and he will have no part of revenge through public scandal a quiet divorce will suffice and so he had decided. It is still Mary's welfare, you see. It's still Mary, and not his own reputation. Still the protection of Mary, and not of himself, that drives the heart and mind of this man of God. Even the interests of an adulterous wife must take precedence to his own. Isn't Joseph's love amazing? No wonder that he should be the man of God's own choosing for the raising of his own son in the days of his earthly childhood. This, this godliness, this spirit of self-sacrifice for the sake of others was a very spirit that Jesus himself must learn, and the Bible plainly tells us that he did, that he must, that he is a true human being that Jesus had to learn. The ways of righteousness he learned here and of love for others that would deny even self for the sake of another, even another who had offended deeply against him. It's a lesson that Jesus would take with himself even to the cross, even to the surrender of his own life out of love for his bride, the church. His adulterous bride, we might add. Isn't it ironic that while the son would become like his father, the father was already becoming like the son. And how much like the father we must strive to be who loved the son and who have been loved by him with such an invincible love, the love with which Joseph loved Mary even after her betrayal, as far as he knew. Here is Joseph, the model for our own love too. And so I ask you, husbands, husband, do you love your wife with this kind of love? That even when she hurts you, and even when she says things to you that cut you to your heart, you still love, and you still show mercy, and you still lay down your own life, by which we mean you lay down your own interests and your own prerogatives for her. 
Parents, do you love your children this way? And children, do you love your brothers and sisters like this so that even when they hurt you, you are still unwilling to return in kind? And instead with love, you reply, Fathers, husbands, are your children learning like Jesus learned in that happy home in Nazareth how a man should love his wife and lay down his life, his prerogatives and plans for her? Surely, surely the Lord is pleased when our homes are filled with this sort of love that Joseph had for his wife, Mary. And may God give us grace to imitate his faith his loving faith in our own lives. But love is defined, isn't it? Love is not simply a warm f feeling, a sort of warm fuzzy in the heart. Love is not blind, not in the truest sense anyway. No, love has eyes. The law, it has been said, is love's eyes, directing it, illuminating it, teaching it, causing it how to live, how to operate. And that is precisely the case here. Joseph was a man of compassion and mercy and love because, because he was also second, a man of obedience to God's law. What God told Joseph to do, he did. And he did it immediately and without hesitation. Children, you sing it in Sunday school. I will obey right away. Look at him here when the angel comes to him and tells him not to fear to take Mary as his wife. When Joseph woke from sleep, verse 24, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife. Alexander White, in his typically colorful style, wonders if this angel visitant came to Joseph one night while Mary was over there in Hebron, you remember, visiting her wise cousin Elizabeth for those three months. If so, White is certain that Joseph rose before daybreak and set out from Hebron that moment to bring his outcast home and to marry her. We don't know exactly, but we, we do know that Joseph obeyed God in this situation as he did in everything. And the first two chapters of Matthew are full of Joseph's obedience to the Lord, even at great cost to himself. Just, just imagine the difficulties of obeying God and marrying the pregnant virgin and what it must have meant for him. His reputation would be lost in the community. It didn't matter, not... Uh, but yet it didn't matter to him, not one bit, if this is what the Lord required of him. Reputation be damned. Then he goes on. He names the child just as he was told. And later on, when told by God's angel to flee to Egypt unquestioningly, uncomplainingly, he goes. And that's no easy thing, you know, for a man of no means or a very little means. And then he returns home again in response to another commandment. We get that same picture in the Gospel of Luke, of Joseph, the law abiding, the God obeying man. It struck me yesterday during the Christmas Eve service, yesterday evening, 
during the reading of Scripture that Luke draws this very point to our attention in connection with the baby's circumcision and the presentation of him in the temple and the offering, all precisely given as required. These things, says Luke, everything, he writes, they did according to the law of the Lord. This sort of obedience, alas, is missing from so much of modern Christianity on this very day. You know, the, the news media has had a, a heyday with this. Even the unbelievers recognize this. Entire churches have dismissed the fourth commandment and called God's holy day family day and canceled the worship of God in the favor of brunch and videos. Serious attention to living according to the law of the word of God is pitifully lacking. Even among Christians today, even among so-called and self-labeled evangelical Christians, and we do, will do well to take from this page a lesson for our own lives. Obedience to God's commandments, to all of God's commandments is simply expected by God from his children. And it's expected of us by God's son who said that if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And it was that model of scrupulous care to obey the Lord's commandments that Jesus watched and modeled and followed in his own life. You know that when Joseph created some tool or, or some piece of furniture, he did so to glorify God and he did all of his work as unto the Lord. Well, that work ethic was passed from father to son as they stood soldier to, uh, shoulder to shoulder in the shop. We may rest certain that Jesus never made anything in that carpenter's shop and performed no miracle and preached no sermon, but that, failed, that, that, that did not fail to rise to the standard that his earthly father had set of obedience to the heavenly father in everything and at all times, with all of his soul, with all of his mind, with all of his heart, with all of his strength. If there is one more thing to notice about Joseph, and that is third, Joseph's willing self-sacrifice. Look at him. Joseph never signed up for any of this. Yet he takes Mary to be his wife, and in the process takes upon himself her shame and makes it his own. Imagine the ways he had to suffer for years and years for this, the talking that went on in Nazareth, the whispers as he walked by on the street 
and the looks, sideways glances he got. Can't you imagine even his business suffering for the stigma of the pregnancy of his betrothed? All the while, Joseph knew the truth and said nothing in his own defense. In fact, there is more. There is an important detail that mustn't escape us here in the text. Verse 25, Joseph took Mary as his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son. Here he is, married to his wife, but he forgoes a sexual relationship with her for months, giving, his up, giving up his own pleasures and rights as a man and as a husband because other considerations must outweigh his own. And there's the flight to Egypt and the protecting and providing for Mary and for Jesus at great cost to himself. None of this fit his dreams. None of this was his plan. A comfortable living in a community where he could build a respectable business and, and have children with his lovely wife and, and settle down. Those were his plans. But all of it takes the back seat and then is kicked finally out the door. But never once do we hear Joseph whine or complain. Can you not hear in all of this something of those words? Not my will, but thine be done. And then you and I are asked to make a small sacrifice of some sort or another, and we say, it's my right to have this. I've earned this. I don't have time to help. Now, what is that but to say to God, not thy will, but mine be done. No, Joseph's example, his Love, his obedience, his self-sacrifice were enough to set our Savior's mind and heart on pilgrimage to the cross, to the ultimate in love, the highest and best in obedience, the most amazing and unspeakable in self-sacrifice, and it must do the same for yours as well. We don't know, you don't have any idea what the Lord will require of you, what your life will hold in his providence, what he will require of us, but we do know what he requires of us today in his law and in his commandments. In some to deny ourselves, to take up our cross and to follow him. Don't expect, by the way, that such a life will give you a great amount of publicity or, or accolades in this life. Even Christian hymnody today gives about as much attention to Joseph as it does to the ox and the ass. 
What is Joseph's reward? The old medieval prayer of St. Joseph puts it this way, speaking of Joseph's relationship to Christ, non solum videre et audire, not only to see and to hear, sed portare de escolare, but to carry, to kiss, vestire et custodire, to clothe and to care for, o felicem virum, o happy man. Here is your reward, Christian, in all of the self-sacrifice, in all of the obedience to the law of the Lord, in all of the love, it is to clothe and to care for Christ as you clothe and you care for one another, your spouse, your wife, your husband, your children, your aging parents, your brother or sister in the Lord, that neighbor, that stranger. Oh, happy man, oh, happy woman, oh, happy boy and girl who serve the Lord in this life, in this way, and so we'll hear in the next from Joseph's own foster son and shoulder to shoulder with Joseph. Well done. Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Amen.